everybody, my name is Kim C. I'm a university fiction teacher and this is my one-woman podcast, The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a show that likes to take a look at the more obscure Stephen King titles and take them through the literature car wash. Although contrary to that statement, 2023 has been a roller coaster with many loop-de-loops and I find myself in a mainstream Stephen King alley chatting about some really famous and popular titles this year. And you know what? I think I'm okay with it. I'm having fun and I'm not in an immediate hurry to leave. As we're approaching the tail end of 2023, I thought it would be a really good idea to cap off this year of many mainstream King titles with the grand dame of them all, 1974's Carrie. Oh, the name that launched a thousand ships. Wow, friends. Having just finished it for the very first time in my life, I'm impressed. She is really aging well. There is a lot of powerful stuff in this little story, and oh my goodness, friends, the amount of analytical academic content on this story is through the rooftops. Hold the phone and shut the front door. This gal is very popular, and now that I have finally read the story, finally digested it from start to finish, I get it, I get it, I get it. Okay, before we go any further, we must talk about the awesomeness I just discovered. I'm getting close to the end of the year, and for those of you darling listeners who have been following the show for a while, you know that the end of the year episode is my absolute favorite. So in preparation for the best of underrated Stephen King 2023, I pulled out my handy-dandy constant reader checklist to tally where I'm at on my King journey. And do you guys know what I discovered? I'm so excited to tell you this. I have read, and this is including Richard Bachman titles, 50 King works. 50, ladies and gentlemen. I'm pretty proud, still many to go, but here's the thing, my loves. The novella slash novel, Carrie, Potato Potato, we'll talk about that later. Miss Carrie, coincidentally, is my 50th title. And she is, next year, 2024. Carrie will be 50 years old. 50 years published. Isn't that wild? 50 King titles, Carrie's my 50th, she's 50 next year, ugh! I'm obsessed with synchronicities, I absolutely love them, and this feels very timely, very right, very meant to be, as if it was supposed to be here and now that Miss Carrietta White and I finally met. In early celebration next year, our homegirl is turning the big 5-0, and what absolutely thrills me is the amount of King fans out there who most likely have been reading him for that long. Can you believe, guys? Incredible. I know there are several out there and it's just a really amazing concept to kick around one's mind. Nearly five decades of reading King. It is absolutely netballs.com. And aside from celebrating 50 years of Carrie, just looking at five decades of King's writing career, celebrating that, and the fact that it's still going, it's such a huge blessing. But yes, Carrie's big 5-0, 50 years of King in publication, 
I'm also hoping they have a really beautiful 50th anniversary edition of some sort. Not that I need extra copies. I'm sure not a lot of us do, we have so many, but I would love to get my hands on that and I know I'm not alone. But before I get off track more than I already have, let's discuss how I want to structure this episode. Similar to my Shining episode this year, I think I'm going to incorporate our usual analytical categories, but there's going to be a lot more subjectivity thrown in. Granted, it's not going to be as subjective as my IT episode, which is one big Kim C diary entry when I think about it, but we're going to strike a nice balance between my personal ideas mixed with some of the tremendous academic theories spent on this story. Wow, my friends, I'm telling you, Carrie absolutely cements why I love the women of Stephen King so much. It's an incredibly fascinating topic, and the observations within the stories, the archetypes, the parallels, the symbolism, what he's playing with, what he is cooking in that stew pot with these females, compelling stuff. And Carrie is... Damn, I mean, she's gotta be one of the strongest examples we have. And my goodness, friends, this lady has more academic papers, PhD dissertations, defending theses, lecture topics, panel headings. This woman is queen of all. And I'm kind of really glad about that because as a character, Miss Carrie really breaks your heart. So the fact that she is able to live forever in these eternal spaces of brilliant minds, putting her on the highest pedestal of academic and literary exploration brings me a lot of happiness. If any character needs to be eternal, it's this lady. The majority of us listening are constant readers, Welcome, welcome. If you're not quite a constant reader, we definitely want you here as well. But because we're constant readers, a lot of us do know a lot of the biographical data surrounding this novel. It's really been cemented into legend over the years. But just in case you need a refresher, here are a few helpful bullet points. Number one, this is a novella that almost never was as Stephen King tossed it into the trash bin and his beloved wife Tabitha fished it out and encouraged him to keep going. Which we've all been there, we get a little frustrated, a little disgruntled, and in the garbage it goes. But thankfully, Tabitha was there to dig it out, oh my gosh, without Tabby, to think Ladies and gentlemen, where would we be? Now, this wasn't King's first written novel, of course. King's first, first foray into fiction, I think, pretty sure, was The Long Walk in the late 1960s when he was still a college student at the University of Maine. There were several other novel-length works sitting in a drawer, but if I'm correct, I believe this story was King's first female-centered exploration, and it did take a while to get to publication. There was a lot of rejections until 1974, the King family got a few shekels thrown at them for the hardcover sales, and then quite a bit more life-changing amount of shekels with the paperback release. 
And then in 1976, director Brian De Palma would get a hold of the film and it became an iconic horror title and propelled Stephen King's name into the spotlight. And as King has quoted previously, it's the book that made me. And I think that's 100% correct, my friends. It made him not only a name in Hollywood, but also in the world of fiction. Oh dear. All of this is so epic, my guys. The history of Carrie and King's publishing career and how financially strapped they were and then blinding success. It's truly incredible. Almost like a lottery win if you think about it. And it's so great to look back at where it all began. And even though I love all this lore more than anything, I think what I love the most when discussing the roots of Carrie is how her unfortunate social circumstances, the brutality she endures, all of that surrounding the character of Miss Carrie White comes from the memory of two very real young women that King knew personally. I think it's in several author forewords for the story, or it's become equally part of the legend of how Carrie came to be, but there were two girls in King's formative years that made a big impact on him, and not necessarily in a positive way. One of the ladies was an elementary school acquaintance whose name has been left anonymous, which I think is wise. This young girl, we'll call her Jane for this introduction, was made fun of mercilessly by her schoolmates because she wore the same outfit to school every day. This was not a private school where a standard uniform would have solved this problem. So of course, this poor girl became a target really fast. And sadly, children are monstrous because they themselves are learning about shame. Their parents are shaming them, scolding them, and monkey see, monkey do. So they're doing it to their peers, mirroring the behavior they've learned. Ergo, Jane was a bullying victim. And what's even more tragic is that clearly Jane is being neglected by the adults in her life. She's most likely not being raised in an environment that has the means to provide for her, whether it's an emotionally healthy one or not. So she suffers twice, once in her own home from the caregivers in her life, and the second round of suffering, lucky her, is on the playground, which absolutely breaks me. In this story, King explores the horrors of American high school, which they indeed can be horrifying, but man, sadly, it starts much earlier than that, doesn't it, folks? Which isn't a fun concept to hold on to, but it is a sad, sad reality I think everyone understands. The second girl, we'll call her Anne, she wasn't exactly ridiculed as much as Jane, if I'm correct on that, but she was very sickly and was raised in a very religious home. And based on King's descriptions, it seemed like a Catholic home that contained a very large crucifix inside the house. And this particular crucifix was a pretty elaborate one with Jesus in the midst of the passion with an agonized look on his face, all the torment and suffering of dying on the cross, yikes. Religious reverence aside, it's a frightening image, guys. You all know this. And King saw it with his very own eyes. Both of these women, as the story goes, neither of them would make it to the age of 30 years old. It's understood that Jane may have taken her life and Anne passed away from health complications 
So we have two young women who echo very loudly in King's mind, and I think it's because they haunt him a little bit. And that haunting, my personal hypothesis is that King wanted to channel that with the character of Carrie, a girl whose entire life is suffering, except for the fact that within her is such a tremendous, dangerous power that she transcends everything and everyone whoever made her feel less than. More on that later. We're definitely going to make a big dent with that one in our later sections. But those two real girls in King's life, the fact that they're interwoven into the character of Carrie, into this story, it really, really moves me. And thinking about those two women and their impact on King really allowed the story of Carrie to have a much stronger impact on me. And with that, let's get into some episode meat. Here is our summary of the 200-page novel slash novella that is 1974's Carrie. In 1979 Chamberlain, Maine, the entire town would agree that Carrietta White is an unfortunate soul. Unattractive and unloved, 16-year-old Carrie is relentlessly bullied by her schoolmates until the public taunting goes too far and the end of the year prom is threatened. Suddenly, Carrie finds herself with an actual date and a new dress and a bit of hope for the future, except for those whose hatred of Carrie drive them toward revenge. Carrie suffers a humiliation that awakens something inside of her not even she understands. This power can move things, summon things, break things. This power obeys and reacts and doesn't fail Carrie where everyone else has failed her and the town of Chamberlain, Maine will never be the same. All right, lovies, I'm excited. Let's roll up our sleeves and get into this episode. I can't decide on whether or not I want characters first or our strengths, so it's actually going to be a little bit of a mystery on where I go from here. But we are going to talk about the characters in this story. Lots to discuss. Wow, we really have some doozies. So we're going to explore our characters. We are also going to take a look at why the story of Carrie is so strong. We'll take a look at what's working to make this nearly 50-year-old novella absolutely memorable and iconic and full of terrifically layered dark mythos that has really mystified us all for the last five decades. We will also talk a little bit about criticism and questions. And then, of course, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about the 1976 film directed by Brian De Palma. Thank you guys so much for sticking with me as we head into this iconic Stephen King text. My throat's a little on the raw side. I think I'm biting something off, so it might be a little husky. Hopefully that's a good thing. If not, apologies in advance. But yes, gym class is over. The gals are in the locker room. And I think we're ready to head into the next section. I'll see you there.
Hello, my darlings. It looks like the characters of Carrie have won the coin toss in terms of going first in this episode. I thought it might be a good idea to give everybody a nice memory jog on the players within Carrie's tragic tale. And this is also going to open up the good and the bad, the hot and the cold that we will resurrect again in our criticism section in terms of some of the weaker areas of our narrative. I do think characters might not be the greatest source of strength in this tale, but we're going to get into that. Firstly, I want to kick it off with the teenagers. American High School is a very large slice of this story, and the teenage players definitely make a real big mess, don't they? So the first character I want to bring to your attention is that of Queen Bee on campus, Chris Hargensen. If you guys remember, Chris is the definition, our modern definition, of a mean girl. She is beautiful, powerful, and very feared. Chris is also very wealthy. They seem to go hand in hand. The beauty typically comes with a contemporary wardrobe, an affluent background to provide such wardrobe and accessories in order to have an edge up on other people, especially women. Chris Hargensen often uses her father and his profession as a lawyer to get what she wants. She's very mouthy when it comes to sparring with adults. She fears no man, no woman, no teacher, no administrator, no one. And so I, I'm really fascinated by Chris Hargensen because she is an irredeemable villain. Yes, she is. But we don't exactly get an idea as to why. We don't necessarily need to know why, but this rich, powerful, ugly person. Granted, she's not ugly on the exterior. They never are. <laughs> but she is very, very ugly inside. And the other side of that ugly coin is Billy Nolan. We don't really know much about Billy, but what we learn from the narrative is that he is also an incredibly cruel individual. One of the most frightening scenes in the story for me is actually when the group heads to the farm to slaughter the pigs to get the blood to put in the bucket to pour on Carrie at the prom. But this is such a sinister scene. I actually think that might be my... No, I can't. It's too gross. It's too much. <laughs> I thought that might be my textual example in the next section, but I don't think I have the stones for it. Anyway, the pig slaughter scene is really upsetting. It's gross, it's visceral, and it's very dark. Billy, as a character, is completely unfazed by the animal violence, the suffering, the screaming of the pigs. It's all very telling. What's also really interesting about Chris and Billy together is they are a sexual couple. Lots of hormones and raging libidos in these 17-year-old bodies. So these are sexual people. But what's fascinating is, contrary to what we see in a lot of high school dramas, there is zero romance here. And that's what's kind of sophisticated about Chris and Billy. They are toxic in all caps. And that is something that I don't feel in the 70s, they really had a mentality about a toxic couple. This is a couple that brings out the absolute worst in each other. And when that sexual energy is exchanged, it's even worse. 
there's a power dynamic there where they're both fighting for power at all times with each other. Billy is consistently fighting to maintain that masculine edge, but Chris Harginson is doing the exact same thing. She doesn't necessarily want to relent or yield like we see in a traditional female energy, which is allowing and open to receiving. Chris reminds me of like a very tightly closed fist. She wants to punch and abuse, especially if she feels she's been wronged, which is the driving force of her character. Revenge against Carrie, hatred of Carrie, even though Carrie really hasn't done anything personally to this girl other than exist. It's really, really... Guys, when you isolate Billy and Chris, they are despicable individuals, but also rather interesting. How do you get such a toxic sludge pile into two good-looking bodies and then make them hate each other but need each other but stay together out of who knows? Really, really sophisticated. A toxic power couple, if you will, who deserve each other but absolutely ruin people's lives when they are together. Thank goodness they aren't full-on adults. I cannot imagine because at 17 years old, they're both pretty horrific, especially when they pair their toxic energies together to harm Carrie. Our next couple is not as interesting, but still worth breaking down a little bit, specifically Sue Snell. Sue is someone who has known Carrie for a while and participates in making fun of her that causes the big shift in the plot in which the girls get in trouble for tormenting Carrie publicly in the bathroom, embarrassing her, and the disciplinary consequences of that is that they're not allowed to go to the prom. But Sue Snell feels remorse. Unlike her psychopathic, sociopathic peer group, Chris Harginson and Billy Nolan, Sue actually kind of feels a conviction to repent, to try and make it right, that she really did kind of cross a line. She volunteers her boyfriend, Tommy Ross, to take Carrie to the prom, to be kind to her, to show her a good time. Tommy Ross is really, really nice. And that's all we have, guys. I'm gonna talk more about this particular character in our criticism section because he's just a little 2D for me in terms of we don't really have a lot there, but Tommy is someone who might be a projection of who Stephen King wanted to be in another life if he could go back in time and be kind to those girls who he wasn't kind to. Not necessarily saying that he was cruel to them, although King himself has said that he wasn't exactly not completely innocent in terms of the mob mentality. But Tommy, when he takes Carrie to the prom, He's rather kind, and his inner thoughts indicate that he actually finds her attractive. And maybe if circumstances were different, he might be attracted to her, and he has to continually make her feel at ease and try to keep her from spiraling into panic and negative self-talk. And while I love that for Tommy, and I love that for Carrie, it's a very light-hearted moment in this story. Um. We just don't have enough character foundation in either Sue or Tommy. We don't really know why these folks are together, how long they've been together, 
But if we're looking at a traditional young romance, from what we know about Carrie White is that everybody dislikes her. Nobody wants anything to do with this girl. And while we have some ideas why, awkwardness, being physically unattractive, strange, I don't know of many high schoolers who transcend that power of popularity, who basically go from the throne of Caesar among the peasants again. Sue Snell, Tommy Ross, Chris Harginson, Billy Nolan, these are good-looking, powerful people on that high school campus, and they like to stay in that zone. And so if they're going to lower themselves to be amongst the unfortunates, the pariahs, we have to have a good idea as to why. Because fitting in and a high school reputation, those are powerful things. And so for me, Tommy never puts up any kind of fight against Sue Snell on taking Carrie to the prom. Tommy is really fine and dandy doing it. I find that a little hard to believe. I can definitely suspend my disbelief, of course, which I did. But it makes me wonder, why would someone popular, good-looking, in a place of power, in a place of safety amongst the high school vipers, why would he risk all of that for Carrie? For Sue? Does he love Sue? Does any high school person really love yet? Debatable. Of course we could say yes, but there's also a lot of hormonal infatuation at that time. So infatuation, maybe. Deep love, unknown. But Sue and Tommy are very, very mysterious for me. Their motivations behind why they do what they do don't really click together in a strong enough way. The chain links are rather loose, ladies and gentlemen. But I do like what King was doing with these two sets of couples. Chris and Billy are absolutely nuclear waste, and the two of them together is a hateful yet sexually electric, abusive mess. Sue and Tommy do explore their sexuality with each other, but it seems rather scientific and experimental rather than some of the darker things that Chris and Billy are involved with. But overall, when I think about Sue, her motivations for helping Carrie, and Tommy and his motivations for helping Carrie, I struggle. I don't know if it makes a lot of sense as to why they did what they did to be a good person. Not a lot of teenagers are selfless like that. And if they are, cool. Explain to me why. What would make them so pious, so generous as to risk that place of power, you know? Something to think about, we'll circle back. Our next character is Rita Desjardins, or Desjardin. She is our PE teacher. I believe in the film she's kind of more of a guidance counselor role, also PE teacher. But what's very interesting in both the film and the novel is that the film version is very kind. I think Brian De Palma's movie makes her a very warm adult who wants to fight for Carrie. She smacks Chris Harginson in the face. It's rather great. In the novel, it seems that Rita Desjardins is not that big of a Carrie advocate. At first, she's so not necessarily disgusted, but astonished. How, how has this poor creature, how does she not know about menstruation? What is wrong with her? She's kind of baffled and mystified, almost like, I can't be bothered with this nightmare of a person. 
But it's only when she realizes the depth of Carrie's need and her misfortune, the crust of her starts to crack off a little bit and she realizes, wow, this girl really has no one. And I can't add more gasoline to the fire by not supporting her. So I guess I should throw her a bone and help her out. I really enjoyed that in the novel. We don't really have anybody who is a white knight for Carrie in terms of a clear white knight. Sue and Tommy and Rita, yes, they help Carrie, but we don't necessarily get a strong indication as to what their motivations are. The film, I think, plugs in those holes and says, oh, these are just good people. The good people will do the right thing and help Carrie. In the novel, yes, we have people being kind to her, but why? It's a great mystery, and it's one of the reasons why I feel the character section isn't as strong. More on that later. But that's our high school cast, for the most part. There are a couple other names thrown around in there that fit into the Chris Harginson clan, or the Billy Nolan gang, or supporters of Sue Snell slash Tommy Ross. But overall, I like looking at these two couples, what they represent in this high school dynamic and how they impact Carrie's tale, especially the end results at the end of the Black Prom. Our next character, wow, very infamous, Miss Margaret White. This is Carrie's mother, and she can be described as a fanatic religious zealot. This lady is also very ugly towards Carrie, rather abusive. Her religious devotion is not based on a lightness of spirit or celebrating one's faith, but rather mourning it and focusing on the condemnation of sin and wickedness. What I really like about the character of Margaret White is when we get a tiny glimpse into her mother, Carrie's grandmother, who is said to have been able to light a fire in the fireplace with her mind, sitting there in a rocking chair minding her own business, being able to know what you're thinking, and to make things happen with her mind. And the narration indicates that perhaps Margaret's mother, Carrie's grandmother, had this very special ability, that it is passed through the maternal line, and that Carrie's powers are in fact hereditary, but they skipped Margaret. The narration also indicates that perhaps Margaret was rather afraid of her mother and her mother's powers, or envious of her mother's abilities. And this kind of tracks a little bit because we do have a few moments in the story where Margaret seems to be afraid of Carrie. Carrie is said to have made boulders rain down on their home, caused a lot of damage, it caused a lot of neighborhood speculation, and biblically, that's a very powerful symbol, the stoning of apostates, the stoning of the early apostles, the stoning of sinners. And so for stones being able to rain down, yeah, lots of good biblical allusion there. But Margaret White is fascinating. Psychologically, we need to get the entire DSM-5 to diagnose this lady. Wow. Sure, we got narcissism. I'm sure we have borderline personality disorder in there kind of like the laundry list of disorders we can attribute to Annie Wilkes, I think Margaret White is up there. What I also liked about reading Margaret White's character 
is how she reminds me of Mrs. Carmody inside The Mist. The Mist is an absolutely terrific novella that kicks off the Skeleton Crew short story collection. Oh my goodness, friends. Mrs. Carmody is just, wow, very loud echo of Margaret White. Only Mrs. Carmody is kind of stirring the pot sociologically in terms of the groups within the doomed grocery store, whereas Margaret White is more focused on the fire and brimstone resulting from her daughter, her daughter's conception, and how the sin of sexuality in whatever form must be stomped out and defeated at all costs. And so anything that Carrie brings to her makes her think about the fall of Eve and the sin of woman and punishing all things woman. Because technically speaking, if one is leaning into a particular perspective on biblical doctrine, woman is to blame for the fall of mankind. Eve ate the apple, insert calamity for all humanity. But Margaret White, what's really hard is, well, we'll kind of talk about this in the novel Strengths, but dang, she really is quite a villain. And what's fascinating, everybody, is that Margaret, Rita, Chris, Billy, four villains. I'm throwing Rita in the villain category. I am. I don't feel she does enough to help Carrie. Sue and Tommy, I wouldn't necessarily call them villains, but I'm not calling them heroes either. This is what's fascinating about the characters in this story, friends. It's like, wow, when we really isolate these folks and try to explore these characteristics, the motivations, the driving forces are very, very mysterious. So it's very hard to label somebody as a hero in this story. I think the only hero we have is our next character, and that is Miss Carrietta White. Carrie is a hero because she survives, she endures for as long as she can. And she tries to take a peaceful pacifist approach to all the torment she receives until she can't any longer. So as I was reading the beginning of Carrie, one thing that kind of struck me, granted, I am not a medical professional, so this might not be the case all the time, but Carrie is described to be very bovine in appearance. So that's quite a descriptor from King. And this is rather jarring in comparison to the Brian De Palma film in which Sissy Spacek is just darling and beautiful. And there's a lot of almost nudity at the first part of the film and a lot of feminine silhouettes and beautiful figures. So Carrie is described as being unattractive and not necessarily slender. She has a larger frame and it's not really indicated that she's overweight, but we got to do something with that. So yeah, proportionally she's challenged a little bit. And so here's where I'm going with that. At the beginning of the story, Carrie is having her menstrual period. And typically when you have as a female more body fat on your frame, that creates a larger amount of estrogen in your body. So sometimes with young girls in elementary school, those who have more adipose tissue have greater estrogen and they in fact bleed earlier in life. I've known friends of friends with young daughters that had a little bit more body fat and were menstruating at 10 years old. Every female body is different, of course, but 
Anatomically speaking, sometimes, if you are a medical professional and this is dead wrong, please forgive me. But typically, in my experience, remember I got kicked out of dental hygiene school, I did have a little bit of science prerequisites. So from what I remember in my anatomy textbook, sometimes more body fat can equate to an earlier menstrual period. So we have the character of Carrie who has, according to the text, a larger frame. One can interpret that that translates to greater body fat. In theory, this would allow for Carrie to have had a menstrual period perhaps earlier than the rest of her peers. But in the novel, Carrie has never bled before. She is 16 years old and she's never menstruated. This is a very late period. Women lose their period or they don't menstruate if they don't have adequate nutrition or a substantial amount of body fat. This is why gymnasts, when they're competing or when they're doing crazy practice day in, day out, the female reproductive system will shut down and say, it's not safe to have a baby. I'm in a famine, so I'm not going to menstruate. I'm not gonna release an egg. That's kind of how it works. Once more, I am not a medical professional and every human body is different. But from what I remember in science class, it's a thing. This happens to women who diet a lot, a lot of extreme exercise. The female body will protect itself by shutting down the reproductive system until it's safe. The female body is consistently trying to stay alive. All human bodies are, of course. So it's going to regulate as best as it can. This is a very long tangent. My point is, ladies and gentlemen, there's no way King would have known this, but for Carrie to have not bled until she was 16 years old means this poor girl must have been so stressed out. The stress that this young woman in that household with that tormentor that is Margaret White, then going to school and being tormented by these assholes, this poor girl because technically speaking, a larger framed body would have menstruated by then. So the fact that she hadn't, it works. It actually really works. Poor Carrie, because when you have that much stress, the female body will shut down as much as it can to survive. So that means Carrie has to be in pure torment and she must, oh, bless her. She probably can't sleep. Her hair is probably falling out. She's probably constipated. Oh man. Basically, insert any kind of traumatic stress disorder, give it to Carrie, because I'm sure that's what she has. Because I was fascinated by the fact that she doesn't menstruate until the age of 16. It's amazing. It's a really cool part of the story. We're actually going to talk about blood a lot more in our next section. But to finish up with Carrie, girlfriend is powerful. She is so powerful, my guys. Wow. Telekinetic, I think, is the largest example of what we see. I think we also have some telepathy in there. I think King kind of blurs the two. We see this with Danny Torrance a lot. We have a lot of cherry picking from various psychic powers. And Carrie is so powerful. The Falling Stones is very cool. And contrary to the film in which the high school is destroyed, Miss Carrie White destroys the entire town in fire and blood. It's great. <laughs> but she is a sad, lonely young woman 
who really only wants a friend, only wants to be understood, starts to, just in the tiniest way, open up to the world to see beauty, to see excitement, to rebel a little bit against her mother, to kind of tap into sexual desire or sexual curiosity just a little bit. She is a young person on the cusp of discovering herself. And these powers are really sort of helping her do that. When I was thinking about Carrie, I was also thinking about the X-Men from Marvel comic books. All of their mutant powers come out through extremely stressful situations, which is what we see with the character of Carrie at the end of the Black Prom. Something happens to Carrie that is so humiliating, you guys know what it is. It is so traitorous, treacherous, despicable, evil that, yeah, she kind of clicks into overdrive and fully transforms. I'm going to talk about that in greater depth in our next section. But what I also really love is the aspects of Carrie. We really get full circle. We see her pain, we see her suffering, we see her timidity. We also see this beauty start to creep out when Tommy takes her to the prom and she's smiling. She's kind of excited. People are talking to her. They're interested in her. They're asking about her dress. She's a normal girl for a couple minutes. And then we see this third act, this transformative Carrie, who is, I think, no longer human, but something much more powerful. I think I'm scratching the surface of our strength section, and I can't wait to get there with you because, wow, we have a lot to cover. And I know this was a little bit rambly, this character section, but I think we should kind of take a second and just gel with this for a couple minutes. Let's think about these people. Let's recap who we've gone over thus far. Let's look at our two teenage couples. We've got the despicable, icky, ugly, yet powerful, incredibly destructive, Chris Harginson and Billy Nolan. And then we kind of have our mystery mobile, that is Zeus Nell and Tommy Ross. Next, we have guidance counselor slash PE teacher, Rita Desjardins, who is mm, not exactly Carrie's advocate, but not exactly her enemy. Kinda helps, kinda doesn't, interesting nevertheless. I think King is maybe perhaps telling the reader, at least the teenagers reading this book, adults can't really help, can they? You're kind of all on your own, which contributes to the horror of this story. It actually fits in nicely. <laughs> Next, we have the terrible, yikes, frightening, stressful, Mrs. Carmody, decades ahead, Margaret White, religious zealot, fanatical nutcase, a huge menu of psychological problems, and sadly, Carrie's very abusive mother. And lastly, we have 16-year-old Carrie White, lonely, unloved, and friendless, hopeful, kind, curious, and then the dark destroyer goddess bringing revenge. So good. Wow, guys, we got a lot of good stuff in that menu, don't we? I'm telling you, for 1974, Kim C. is impressed. Yes, I am. All right, my dears, without further ado, I got my ticket to the Black Prom. Do you? I'll see you in the next section.
Welcome everyone to the strength section for 1974's Carrie. Oh dear, I am very nervous heading into this section, dear ones, because, wow. For the past five decades, this novel has really given a lot of brilliant academic minds a ton of content to mull over and pick apart and dissect. There are some tremendous thoughts out there. Lots of scholarly articles, dissertations, rather impressive. So I did spend a little bit of time with their research, and I'm going to do my best to kind of distill my own subjective take and pick sort of my favorites when it comes to analyzing Carrie, because there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff out there. If you love Carrie, well, there is an endless amount of academic insight to help you love it even more. And friend of the podcast, David McCracken and his team at the Stephen Kingdom have done an absolutely beautiful job dissecting Carrie. I believe he just finished his sixth part. We're going to talk a little bit about the content on that sixth episode. The first strength I want to take a look at is, of course, our narrative structure. We have an epistolary narration throughout this story. Epistolary means a story is revealed through letters or mixed media. And the novel is divided into three parts. The first part is Bloodsport, the second is Prom Night, and the last is a very small segment called Wreckage. And in between those three parts, the narration is consistently interrupted by scholarly articles, Sue Snell's autobiography, government documents. There's a lot of content that contribute a lot of good to the text. Some people also identify that the epistolary content is trying to lengthen the text. It is. It's totally doing that. What we have is a short story that King is filling with air, <laughs> but the decision to add the epistolary content, I think, makes the story stronger. For example, we have a lot of intimate third-person omniscient narration. We spend a lot of time in Carrie's private thoughts, in her bedroom, in the thoughts of some of these teenagers. We're very, very close to them. And then suddenly, we hear about this initiative called the Carrie White Commission, or the White Commission. And then there's this title called The Shadow Exploded about the telekinetic phenomenon in Chamberlain, Maine. And all of a sudden, this very intimate third-person narration goes from the micro to the macro very quickly. Suddenly, we're in Carrie's bedroom, and then in the next paragraph, we're zooming out and we're floating over the city of Chamberlain, and then we're zooming out even more to floating over the east coast of the U.S., floating out even more to North America, planet Earth, etc. And I love that. I think it creates a lot of power in the foreshadowing, because obviously the reader is very curious as to what happened, what is going to happen that all of this hullabaloo, all of this media attention and focus and analysis, something really big must have happened. We got to find out what that is. So it creates urgency in the narration, curiosity. It's a really effective foreshadowing technique. The only thing that's a little problematic is it creates a bumpy narration. When I did my book club meetup for Carrie, a lot of the patrons said they weren't exactly thrilled in those parts of the story. They found it a little clunky, a little difficult to get through because we wanted to stay with our characters. We wanted to stay with the plot 
and then all of a sudden with each interstitial you have to ground yourself you have to kind of fix your hat and adjust your suit and say, okay, where am I? What's going on? What is this? The White Commission, the shadow exploded, I am Sue Snell. There's a lot of that going on. So it's consistently interrupting the narrative flow. But when we zoom out and look at the story as a whole, it's incredibly effective. And I really applaud King for putting as much interstitial content in there as he did, because it makes the whole story of Carrie. It just makes Carrie larger than life and absolutely legendary by the time this thing ends. Looking at this very frail, small, victimized little person and then understanding in full detail of why she did what she did, having... <laughs> What's also fascinating is I think most readers have... We feel that Carrie's completely in the right for doing what she does. There's really no shame or condemnation of Carrie's actions, which is pretty cool. But I love the structure of this story. Yes, in its composition, it is effective for elongating the story, but it also lends a lot of foreshadowing and overall enhances the impact of Carrie on not only Chamberlain, but the world. Really cool. Okay, the second strength that I did want to talk about is just the symbol of blood, guys. It's just everywhere. So this next category is called Born in Blood. This stems a lot from my background in religious studies. For those of you who don't know, I received my minor in religious studies and I really, really love the field. And if I had the time and finances to go back to school, I would in a heartbeat and I would get additional credentials in religious studies. It would be a class I would love to teach, specifically world religions, anything to do with the Eastern stuff. And then, oh, it would be so cool if I could get into folklore things as well as Druids and Vikings. It would just be amazing. So one thing that we're kind of taught in religious studies classes and observing sacred stories is the shedding of blood is something to always pay attention to. We have blood everywhere, don't we? <laughs> Throughout the history of mankind's time on the planet, red, red blood is something that is a part of our legacy as humans. But when you're in religious studies coursework, anytime blood is shed, you gotta really zero in on that. Sacrifice always equals power, and there's a lot of life force in human blood. The ancient Maya were sacrificing people left and right at the top of those temples because they knew the shedding of blood causes things to move. It awakens the gods. It pushes them to action. It's a way to get what you want and get results when there is the shedding of blood. So within Carrie, we just have blood everywhere, don't we, guys? The blood is incredibly effective with allowing Carrie to be on the horror shelf, of course, but it's also such a powerful symbol, right? There's that word again, powerful. That's definitely going to be my word for this episode. So much power in this little story. But anyway, we have our first example of blood is of course, menstrual blood. This is a huge symbol for femininity and power because anthropologically speaking, the female species is the only one who is losing bodily fluid, losing blood each month, and we are not wounded. It's not killing us. And so I think it was the ancient Maya or Aztec who actually found a woman's menstrual time to be a time of power. They thought this was amazing that a woman can bleed and it doesn't necessarily indicate she's wounded. Whereas if a man bleeds, he is wounded. And so there's that exchange of this person is much stronger 
there's a lot of human curiosity in regards to female menstruation. And so we have Carrie, who had her menstrual period very, very late, and the novel equates that to her telekinetic ability. I also think it can be equated to the stress of her home, anatomically, but menstrual blood is huge. And I, I find it very interesting that King decided to take on such a very personal and private aspect of female life. But I'm glad he did that because when you study any kind of ancient text or learn about reproductive practices, births, menstruation is highly regarded as a woman's time of power. The other blood symbol we have is, of course, the blood of Christ. That's everywhere. And according to sacred story, the crucifixion of Jesus, the shedding of blood, was to cleanse the sins of mankind for a greater relationship with the divine. But in order to get all that blood, there was extreme brutality from the Romans and a lot of graphic imagery to convict the human soul to repent and to understand that there was such suffering to such suffering for the remission of sin. But the blood of Jesus is something that Margaret White throws in Carrie's face, not literally, of course, but she's consistently equating various types of blood. There's the sinful blood of Eve, the cursed blood, and then there's divine blood. There's just blood everywhere. The last strong example we have is, of course, the pig's blood. And this one is the most haunting for me, ladies and gentlemen, because as I said in the previous section, that scene is my least favorite, but it's also the most effective and terrifying for me. There's something so icky about Billy and like this, ugh, I don't like it. I don't really know why it is. And it's interesting because I don't really give a hell when the entire town of Chamberlain is going up in flames and getting murdered. That doesn't faze me as much as the fact that these animals have no idea what's going to happen to them. Even though throughout human history, pigs are regarded to be filthy and unclean animals. This is why we have kosher and halal practices pig is an unclean animal. They shouldn't be ingested, according to certain religious affiliations. But the pig's death is rather graphic, and the fact that this very smelly, it would be cold by the time, it, but ugh, just this bloody baptism that Carrie receives from this very unclean animal. And ew, it's just so, oh wow, it's horrifying, guys. It's really horrifying and completely effective because that is the catalyst. The pig's blood is what allows Carrie to transform. That's where we see that full mutation take place. And granted, it's not a physical mutation like we see with some of our Marvel X-Men or when we see the werewolf becoming in traditional horror stories or the vampire becoming. We're not privy to a physical transformation, but at that moment, Carrie's powers completely take over and Carrie is no more. That's just my personal hypothesis. So when you think of blood or when you see blood, always remember the life force behind it. Remember all of the energy and all the power. The fact that we have blood everywhere in this story contributes to so much power. And it's really interesting because for the most part, I feel the reader were put pretty low with Carrie's suffering. We really feel a heaviness of heart and spirit when we have to continually examine this girl being victimized, tortured, ridiculed, abused, it really 
It makes me sad. I think it makes all of us really sad and pissed off as to why this is happening to her. But yet, I think all of the blood in the background is kind of also foreshadowing that there is so much power surrounding this girl. And it is a dark power, but it is coming. This dark, dark birth. And of course, when we have birth, it is a very bloody affair. So there really is this concept of Carrie being born slash transformed by blood. And so when I look at Carrie as a horror novel, as King's first attempt, looking at his writing, I really observe that raw energy. I think I also observe this in my Salem's Lot reading this year. There's a lot of raw, powerful energy in what King is cooking up with this story. And I can't help but connect the two with all the blood that we have present in this story. When you guys read Carrie, look at these examples and always associate it with life force energy, something brewing. So anytime we see blood, there is power. So it kind of changes the overall effect of Carrie for me. I don't necessarily feel as sad or somber as I did in the beginning when I reflect on every iteration of blood. That bloody pig baptism awakens Carrie to her full potential. And we do see that transformation into a god. More on that in this next section. But yeah, lots of blood and I really like it. <laughs> and I know that's kind of strange to say, but I'm into it. It works for the horror genre, but it also works in a very historically significant and sophisticated examination of anthropological religious practices. That was quite a mouthful. I don't even know if it works, guys. This is, we're, we're starting to spiral out a little bit and hopefully I don't spiral out too much on our last category. But before we head into that category, I did want to read a little bit from the text to kind of look at that intimate third person omniscient, but also I enjoy this scene because Carrie is playing with her power and there's a little bit of awareness in terms of who she could potentially become and I, I thought it was really cool. My reader's copy is the old Doubleday hardback with the brunette profile on the cover. It is not a first edition sadly, oh sad sad sad, but it's definitely an oldie, an oldie but a goodie. This is toward the bottom of page 62 in the American hardcover from Doubleday. It was the 17th, May 17th. She crossed the day off the calendar in her room as soon as she slipped into her long white nightgown. She crossed off each day as it passed with a heavy black felt pen, and she supposed it expressed a very bad attitude toward life. She didn't really care. The only thing she really cared about was knowing that Mama was going to make her go back to school tomorrow and she would have to face all of them. She sat down in the small Boston rocker, bought and paid for with her own money, beside the window, closed her eyes, and swept them and all the clutter of her conscious thoughts from her mind. It was like sweeping a floor. Lift the rug of your subconscious and sweep all the dirt under. Goodbye. She opened her eyes. She looked at the hairbrush on her bureau. Flex. She was lifting the hairbrush. It was heavy. It was like lifting a barbell with very weak arms. Oh, grunt. The hairbrush slid to the edge of the bureau. 
slid out past the point where gravity should have toppled it, and then dangled as if on an invisible string. Carrie's eyes had closed to slits. Veins pulsed in her temples. A doctor might have been interested in what her body was doing at that instant. It made no rational sense. Respiration had fallen to 16 breaths per minute, blood pressure up to 190 over 100, heartbeat up to 140, higher than astronauts under the heavy G-load to lift off, temperature down to 94.3 degrees. Her body was burning energy that seemed to be coming from nowhere and seemed to be going nowhere. An electroencephalogram would have shown alpha waves that were no longer waves at all, but great jagged spikes. She let the hairbrush down carefully. Good. Last night she had dropped it. Lose all your points, go to jail. She closed her eyes again and rocked. Physical functions began to revert to the norm. Her respiration speeded until she was nearly panting. The rocker had a slight squeak. Wasn't annoying though, was soothing. Rock, rock, clear your mind. Carrie? Her mother's voice, slightly disturbed, floated up. She's getting interference like the radio when you turn on the blunder. Good, good. Have you said your prayers, Carrie? I'm saying them, she called back. Yes, she was saying them all right. She looked at her small studio bed. Flex. Tremendous weight. Huge. Unbearable. The bed trembled and then the end came up, perhaps three inches. It dropped with a crash. She waited, a small smile playing about her lips, for Mama to call upstairs angrily. She didn't, so Carrie got up, went to her bed, and slid between the cool sheets. Her head ached and she felt giddy, as she always did after these exercise sessions. Her heart was pounding in a fierce, scary way. She reached over, turned off the light, and lay back. No pillow. Mama didn't allow her a pillow. She thought of imps and familiars and witches. Am I a witch, Mama the Devil's Whore? Riding through the night, souring milk, overturning butter churns, blighting crops while they huddled inside their houses with hex signs scrawled on their doors. She closed her eyes, slept and dreamed of huge, living stones crashing through the night, seeking out Mama, seeking out them. They were trying to run, trying to hide, but the rock would not hide them. The dead tree gave no shelter. Dang, wasn't that cool? Oh man, I'm so into that scene. So much writerly raw energy from King, but we have hints of Carrie embracing this not necessarily darkness, not really, but power. Ugh, the power! The power that she is gently nurturing and practicing, and I just love it so much, guys. It's just very, very cool. Man, I just, I'm loving Carrie, y'all. I just think this is so cool. And I'm not really reflecting on it with as much sadness as I thought I originally would. I'm not seeing it as a sad story. I'm seeing this as like a badass boss bitch story <laughs> with Carrie transforming into a queen. That will lead us into our next strength, which is the dark feminine question mark. So this one's a little bit tinfoil hat. It's a little woo woo, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But what I will say is that 
You guys know that I do really enjoy what Stephen King does with females, particularly those who get the dark goddess treatment. I think we can throw a couple well-known gals into the dark goddess archetype. Susanna Dean from The Dark Tower, Charlie McGee from Firestarter, maybe even Annie Wilkes from Misery. There's a lot of dark goddess behavior associated with these. But when I was looking at Carrie, and I knew Carrie was going to be extremely powerful at the end, I knew she was going to sort of transform, I immediately said, oh, Carrie's a dark goddess, period. But now having read Carrie, I don't know about that, guys. How I'll begin this section is with something I saw a couple weeks ago, and I was watching something about male-female relationships, and it was really fascinating. And what this scholar said has stuck with me for the last couple weeks, and it kind of crept into my Carrie analysis. So this individual said, When a man, somebody who is traditional cisgender masculine or really operating in that masculine space, when a man wants to cause harm, he will use his hands. Anything he can get his hands on or his hands himself, he will use to harm someone. And that is the masculine energy. When a woman would like to harm someone, she will use her words, her mouth. The things that come out of her mouth are her greatest weapon. Granted, they might not do as much physical damage as a man, but they will be equally strong in their ability to destroy. That is a woman, traditional cisgender feminine, or somebody operating in that feminine energy. That is how a woman will harm her mouth, her words. So this was really interesting for me, guys, because... I believe it's discussed amongst the lore of early Carrie publications that the first draft of this story had Carrie transforming, sort of, or growing really tall into a kind of Godzilla 50-foot woman bestial thing, and she's towering over the town of Chamberlain, smashing people, lasers are coming out of her eyes, she really does transform into a kind of creature. and. This is very telling, even though King changed the ending and we have Carrie kind of not surviving the narrative due to a wound from her mother. But here's where I kind of have this question mark floating above me. Feminine energy, if you look at light feminine, think of every sort of Disney princess kindergarten teacher you can plug into your mind kind, giving, nurturing, they are consistently serving, loving, providing, allowing, receiving. That's that light feminine. Now the dark feminine is all of that just enhanced and not necessarily in the focus of others, but on the focus of the woman. She is very passionate, self-serving, seductive, magnetic, very powerful, fearless, knows her boundaries. She's very, very strong. So that's dark feminine energy. So I was convinced that that's what Carrie had and that's what Carrie was at the end of this novel before I even read the book. I was just convinced that that's where it was going to go. But having had the idea that a man will use his hands to destroy and looking at the destruction of Chamberlain, how the whole place goes up in flames, the school is destroyed, things are flying around, people are getting thrown into electrical fields, cars are being tossed around, like, 
This is a very masculine way of destroying. And so what my theory is, is that King sort of makes Carrie either a non-binary or a very masculine deity by the end. She has that bloody baptism, her powers completely take over, and whether you want to think it's revenge or not, whether it's justified or it's vengeance, she hurts people physically. She's not using her physical hands, like I mentioned in that definition, but her mind is the hand. Nothing is coming out of her mouth. Carrie doesn't say anything. She doesn't tell Chris Hargenson she needs to burn in hell and she's the whore of Babylon and she's a despicable human being and she wants her to die a thousand deaths. That would have been cool. And that also would have been very feminine in terms of a curse. The curse put on you, using your mouth to curse someone. The witches of old would gather the necessary materials to curse someone and the words of the spell are coming out of their mouth, right? But Carrie is silent during this execution and destruction of Chamberlain. Very fascinating, guys. So all of a sudden, my dark goddess theory wasn't exactly holding up because I'm not really seeing the dark feminine coming out of Carrie in that moment. She is silent, but she's destroying things with her hands, in quotes, her mental hands. Therefore, I don't know if goddess is appropriate. I think we might have to choose God, which can be masculine or non-binary. I think we might have to go there with Carrie because for me, we have all of this beautiful feminine energy at the beginning of this novel. Carrie's very aware of her blossoming breasts, her waistline, the way the dress fits her. She's got menstrual cramps. We've got a lot of female body-centered concepts at the beginning of this story, specifically surrounding Carrie. But by the time we get to the end and we have that pig's blood baptism, I don't find any femininity in Carrie anymore. There's no dark feminine. We've got something monstrous and masculine, potentially genderless at that point. She might just be a genderless, leaning toward the masculine, very, very powerful deity. That was a real learning moment for me, guys. I was so ready to stamp a label on Carrie being the first dark goddess, but I don't think it works. And I was pleasantly surprised. I was really into the fact that King destroys Chamberlain the way a very, very angry masculine presence would. Kill everyone and everything and burn it down to the ground. Burn it to ash. I can't find the feminine in that. It's not a problem at all, but it's very interesting. We have all of this femininity at the beginning of the book and then once we get to the black prom, it all goes away. It's as if Carrie was never, ever, going to be victorious in the female form. She was always going to be slighted and abused and harmed, and it's only transforming into the masculine, it seems, that King associates power. I don't know, guys. I could be really going into the weeds with this, so we're going to step on back to the main road, because I might be going off on a wild hair. 
But that was something I noticed. I was pleasantly surprised in the reveal of this story, especially when we look at the original draft of what Carrie turned into. So there's some cool stuff there, and I would love to know your thoughts as well. I'm sure a lot of you have probably done some scholarly research on this story. There's just so many, 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 many titles out there that explore what Carrie is, what this story is doing, and it's amazing. But yes, I have one more tiny topic I wanted to talk about because I love it so much, and I just recently had my book club meet up for Fairy Tale. I posted my episode on Fairy Tale a couple weeks back. As I've really, really enjoyed exploring Fantasy King this year with the Eyes of the Dragon and then Fairy Tale, but my friend David McCracken from The Stephen Kingdom Part 6, where Kim C actually voices a dinner role in that episode. Granted, it's my voice, but in chipmunk form, so <laughs> probably about nine minutes in is when I think you'll hear me the most, but it is chipmunk version of Kim C. But anyway, David's segment on part six revolves around Carrie as a dark Cinderella. And I, let me tell you, 10-year-old me absolutely rejoiced. Not necessarily at the dark part, but Cinderella is one of my all-time favorite fairy tales, as well as my all-time favorite Disney movies. But here's what thrilled me to no end. If you guys didn't know, Cinderella is really, really an old story, as in like several thousand years old. There have been versions throughout all cultures, for a very long time. Charles Perrault in the 1700s, France, decided to give us the Cinderella we know and love today with the glass slipper. That was because apparently a lady's ankles were very taboo at that time, and seeing ankles really put men into a frenzy. They thought it was very sexy, very forbidden. So we've got the glass slipper and the ankles and the ball and the wicked stepmother and stepsisters, and that's the traditional Cinderella that we've had for the last 300 years or so, but Cinderella is a four-syllable name. So is Carietta. Carietta is also four syllables, and we have, in the traditional Cinderella story, a young girl who is really taken advantage of, locked away, harmed, starved, kept away from the outside world. She escapes, magic intervenes, she's given sort of a benevolent blessing from external spiritual forces, and she's able to go to the ball, she's able to go to the big soiree where she meets the prince and her life is saved and improved by an advantageous marriage. But what's also present in the traditional Cinderella story is how she gets revenge on her tormentors. Cinderella doesn't just wave her hand and step into the prince's coach off to her beautiful life. No, she does exact some justice onto those who harmed her. And in various iterations of the story, she cuts off things. She has the hands and noses cut off of the people that hurt her. Nobody gets away unscathed. And so what's very cool is there's a lot of analytical scholars out there who see Carrie as a dark version of Cinderella. Carrie's life is brightened and enhanced when Tommy Ross asks her to the prom. The gal who allowed that to happen is a fairy godmother insert, sort of. I think this gives her way too much credit. But Sue Snell is really the only benevolent force that we have in this story. Some people, I guess the film version would argue Rita Desjardins might be that way, but I don't think so. I don't think really Carrie has any advocates, but 
Sue Snell is the strongest example of someone being kind to her, sorta kind of. So Garrett goes to the ball, Tommy Ross is her prince, she is experiencing ethereal magic until the clock strikes midnight and the bucket of blood falls on her. Granted, the clock didn't really strike midnight in the book, but you guys get what I'm saying. There are so many little game pieces that you can move from Carrie into Cinderella, and it is so much fun, guys. So I really wanted to bring that up, and thank you to David from the Steven Kingdom for pointing it out. It's so good. Oh man, as I said, guys, there's just so... <sighs> there's so much stuff in Carrie. Wow, it's intimidating. This is a very, very crowded room full of things to say because there are so many themes throughout this story, right? We've got religious fanaticism, we have societal commentary, we've got bullying, we have revenge. This thing is a really stuffed sandwich, let me tell you, and I think I've fallen in love with it because of that. I just, how can you not love this story? How? I don't know, like, how can you not? I guess the only reason you might have some issues is with these sort of subjective feelings, because it is a downer. I feel very, very sad. But the sadness is quickly scooped up by all of the powerful blood and all of the symbolism and what this girl transforms into and all of the epistolary content that exacerbates how incredible this woman is. This small, victimized, tormented, tortured young girl gets the last laugh and punishes the world, and it's epic. Oh man, it's just so cool, and I'm really, really smitten for Carrie, guys. I just, man, my brain is just going a thousand different directions, and I think I've rambled a little too long, but hopefully some of this has distilled a few of my personal favorite strengths within Carrie. There are, of course, thousands more, and if you are interested, please jump over to YouTube and check out The Stephen Kingdom. He's done a fantastic six-part, and it's still going. It's still going. I think part seven is coming up, where he's going to talk about female menstruation. It's going to be amazing! But yeah, I love Carrie. Hopefully you guys can gain that from my blabberings, but at this point, Let's head into our next section. Chamberlain is on fire, and I'm not really in any hurry to put it out or call the fire department. So let's just watch it burn, and I will meet you in our final section, Criticism, Questions, and the 1976 Brian De Palma film.
Why, hello, class of you in high school. This is our final section within this episode exploring 1974's Carrie. This is our criticism and question section. And what we covered in our last section, the strengths of Carrie, were the following. We first explored the epistolary structure of Bloodsport, Prom Night, and Wreckage. Next, we discussed how Carrie is born and blood, and all that blood, though horrific, though macabre, is full of power. Topic number three was the dark feminine question mark. Is it fair to call Carrie a goddess? I really don't know anymore. And lastly, insert dark Cinderella. Carrietta White might be the new little cinder girl in more ways than one. In this final section of this Carrie episode, I'm going to do my best to critique Carrie like any other story and question it the way I would any other slice of fiction. But it is challenging because I know, I know, I know it is Stephen King's very first marketed novel, even though I think according to page length alone, this is a novella, my loves. Remember what I talked about in my top 15 novella countdown? If it's under 250 pages, we are still a novella. But it was marketed as a novel, so I will honor it. We'll just go with that. But what's challenging in looking at Carrie is that the things I do have issue with, they most likely wouldn't be an issue if this was allowed to be a longer story, if this could be a longer story. But alas, let's take a look at what isn't so strong in this Maiden King voyage. Before I start getting nitpicky, I must cement my foundation that overall I'm very pleased with this story. I kind of love what it's doing exactly as it is. I love the structure, I love the content, I'm really okay with every choice that was made. And the fact that almost 50 years later, it can stand all on its own, wow, it really impresses me, really moves me. So I gotta give it props for that. I've already indicated an issue with this first topic in our very first section, which were the characters of Carrie. You guys know I wasn't super thrilled with what we had there. So this first topic, this first critique is simply looking at the lack of character depth and wishing there was a little bit more. Now once more, I do believe the story works really well without the addition of robust characters. In reference to our Dark Cinderella, it's okay to have stock characters that indicate, oh, this woman is a villain, this man is kind, this woman is our fairy godmother. We don't necessarily need to know why they are what they are, why they do what they do. Sometimes you just have to throw your hands up in a story and say, all right, this is this character. However, looking at Carrie from the eyes of 2023 and knowing what I know about King and his extremely amazing character writing, it would be really nice to know more about our character lineup. And I'm happy to report that a lot of critics of Carrie do align with what I'm putting forth in terms of these high school characters operating on a one slash two dimensional plane at best. Sue Snell, Tommy Ross, Chris Harginson, Billy Nolan, 
Their all reading is very archetypal and not fleshed out. For example, when you really think about it, what do we know about Chris Harginson other than she's the mean girl? We do have a slight bit of detail in terms of her relationship with her father, but do we really, really know, guys, why she is this way? We don't. If you do, and I'm missing something, please tell me. But same thing with her boyfriend, Billy Nolan. He's a bully. He's a ringleader of bullies. He's a menace. Do we know why? Do we know how? We don't. Sue Snell is probably the most beguiling because she's the one who kind of has this not necessarily literal come to Jesus moment, but she does flip 180 from being a very cruel tormentor of Carrie to feeling extreme regret and remorse and wanting to do the right thing, wanting to make amends. Why and how did she get there? I would love to know. But the person I want to know the most about is Mr. Tommy Ross, the nice boy, our prince. He is a little bit reluctant when Sue encourages him to take Carrie to the prom. He does protest a little bit, but in my reading, it just didn't seem enough to indicate his character was really fighting back against something. He just kind of threw up his hands and said, okay, and then kind of pursued it. I mean, really pursued it. He goes to Carrie's house and knocks on her door and she kind of slams it in his face. She runs away from him. She wants nothing to do with him. Carrie's aware of who he goes with. Like, this is very unappealing to Carrie. This is a dangerous, unfair kind of thing. But Tommy continues to push and coax and try to win her over. And this is so mysterious to me, my loves. Why would he do this? Just for Sue? No. With respect <laughs> to all males listening out there, um... Gentlemen, maybe you're motivated to just act out of the kindness of your heart, but a 17, 18 year old, sell it to me. Sell it to me, King, because I don't believe you. I don't believe Tommy Ross is just St. Thomas Aquinas over here, <laughs> being kind and good and wanting to really let Carrie have a good time on his behalf. Stop it. I don't believe you. I need to know more. Why would Tommy do this? Did he feel the kind of regret that King feels on making fun of a girl in school? Did something happen to where he realizes, hey, maybe I shouldn't act like that, or maybe everybody's been really unfair with this girl? Tommy is the person I would probably isolate if I had one character I could enhance and just give a little bit more backstory to, it would be Mr. Ross. Everybody else, I'm okay with Sue being kind of 50-50, I'm okay with Billy being a menace, and I'm certainly okay with Chris being an absolute wench from the gutter. It's fine. But Tommy, he's the one. I need some help, ladies and gentlemen. Gotta sell it to me. In addition to craving a little bit more from the teenagers, I was very hungry to learn more about Carrie's backstory, specifically her grandmother. It seems like the White Commission and the Shadow Exploded and all of these other government entities that have their hooks in Carrie's life and every person she ever met, every person she ever talked to, you'd think we would have a lot more autobiographical details about her by certain points in the story, especially the end. 
So it seems like the reader should be able to gain more on Carrie's grandmother, her great-grandmother, and the bloodline of this TK legacy. This telekinetic, psychokinetic, this bloodline. Remember guys, this story is all about blood. Blood, 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 blood. If we could follow that bloodline just a little bit more, we get the tiniest vignette about her grandmother that really gives me witchy-woo vibes. It makes me think that Margaret White was afraid of her own mother, afraid that maybe she did witness some paranormal things that frightened her to the point of religious fanaticism because she did see some dark stuff in her life. I'm telling you, my guess is that Carrie is a descendant of witches, and this would be so cool, and I know my inner fanfiction is coming out. I'm gonna try and tamp it back down in there, but it would have been very cool if we could have at least gone through a generation or two to the early Maine settlers and found out that the women in Carrie's family have certain abilities. I feel it could be a very, very rich addition, and King seemed to be scratching at its surface because Carrie suffered so deeply, friends. She died alone and so painfully, and with the addition of her family bloodline information in that area, I was really craving a bit of respite by going into the past and observing if her bloodline was always this cursed. Or did the power that followed her through the generations allow for an easier life somewhere? Was it always this sucky? Was it always this hard for them? Or was there a time when they ruled all and had a lot of contentment and knew their power? Had peace? I don't know. Insert any kind of relief you can find. But overall, my friends, it's just those two areas. More Tommy Ross, please, and the bloodline of Carrie White. We don't have to go back very far. I don't want to distract too much from the narration more than we already do with the epistolary interstitials. We don't have to go too hardcore with it. But more on Carrie's grandmother, more on her mother. What did the historians dig up from the White Commission? What could they tell the reader about the White family bloodline when they came to this country? Oh, it would have been so rich. And now, before we say farewell, let's talk about the movie. Now, my guys, just like I had never ever read Carrie before, I had never ever seen the film in its entirety. Of course, I had seen the infamous prom scene. I did know about that. It's pretty iconic in pop culture. So I did know what that was all about, but I rented it. I sat down. I observed. I took notes. I really liked it. Firstly, I'm a huge fan of any kind of films from that era, 1975, 77, 78, mostly because that was when my parents were teenagers. My mom was the class of 1978, my dad was 1977, so all of their high school photos look exactly like the people in the film. I just love everything about it. I love the hair, I love the fashion, I love those high-waisted gym shorts, and like that's what my mom looked like in her old photos. So. I do feel more connected to it than the average bear. I just love everything about it. My mom told me how they would air dry their hair and long and straight and just all the styles. Fashion and costumes take me very, very far in film, so I really appreciated the whole look of this film. Also, my mom was a cheerleader. 
which yeah makes a lot of sense <laughs> but it was pretty cool to see the girls in PE and know wow my mom several decades earlier was doing the exact same thing that they were doing I was really pleased with casting. I thought everyone was cast extremely well, especially Sissy Spacek as Carrie. She's very pretty. Of course, Carrie in the novel, I don't believe, is supposed to be that pretty. Sissy Spacek is plain, and I think plain is what Hollywood deems ugly, in my opinion. Plain, you have to be borderline repulsive. It's a very, very strange report card they use. But she has a beautiful figure. There's a lot of female erotic scenes, which I get. We're talking about femininity and womanhood and the body. So it makes sense that there would be some almost nudity there. But I'm really pleased with the casting, except for John Travolta. He's okay. It wasn't a deal breaker, but I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that I was thinking of Danny from Greece and some of his other film roles. Saturday Night Fever, and I'm seeing him as Billy, and I'm like, ah, I guess. I guess. But I kind of wish they would have had an unknown or somebody that wasn't as famous as Don Travolta, because it just... Too many other roles were clashing in my mind when I was observing his character as Billy, but I did believe him to be kind of a jerk, and that's what she wants. So casting extremely pleasing, minus John Travolta. It was okay, just not great. The other thing I do really like, John Travolta aside, is I do enjoy how the film shows Chris and Billy's very dark and tumultuous relationship. And man, I love the prom, guys. It's just, it's such a wonderful slow burn. And then when we get to the prom, the viewer just knows it's all gonna go down. And that final scene, the infamous blood bucket scene, it still slaps, as the kids say. It's really epic and wow. Just the slow motion blood fall. Ugh. And just to see her joyful face contort into horror and terror and then they're all laughing at her. It's just like a slow motion nightmare. It's amazing. It's iconic. I really, really love it. It still holds up. It's so cool. And I rewound it a couple times because the original blood drop, it doesn't seem to douse her as much as she's completely drenched in a few frames later on. I, I mean, we could suspend our disbelief that it just all kind of soaked into her, <laughs> but from the blood bucket fall to Carrie like five minutes later, completely saturated head to toe, uh... <laughs> Again, these are such small potatoes, the tiniest little peccadillos, but it's so iconic. Her sweet pink dress, all that sweet feminine innocence, and then this unwanted bloody baptism. And I just love how quickly her powers take over. Like, it's the horror and the mental snap and suddenly Carrie is taken over. It's as if her powers sort of lock away any resemblance of Carrie and say, we're in the driver's seat now. Let us do this. And I love that. I just love it. There's something so pagan and awful about this blood baptism. And oh, I just, I love that right away she snaps. I love Sissy Spacek and those wide eyes and these sharp head movements. And it's a little cheesy today because we've just had so many horror films saturate our subconscious. But at the time this was created, it was 
stuff of legend. Really, really like it. So yes, friends, I'm a huge fan of the film. I love Piper Laurie as Carrie's mom, Amy Irving as Sue Snell, strong, memorable female performances, just everything about it. The set of Carrie's house, that black prom night, really big fan of the film. Final thoughts, dear ones. Okay, my loves, I am so glad I made it to the here and now to learn about Miss Carrie White. It feels really good that I didn't read it in years previous, but waited until right now. Looking at this story, looking at its foundation, all the rooms, the blueprints, I love this experimental patchwork narrative with a ton of epistolary content. Just enhances and exacerbates in all the right places. I love the dark tragedy of Carrie and the heavy sadness that for me is freakishly, I don't know why this is, but I'm just being truthful. All that sadness is lightened for me by the bloody switchover into the powerful godlike entity she becomes. Carrie, for a brief moment, is the great destroyer. So even though her physical death, the end of the novel is mired in sadness and she's just echoing over and over again, you tricked me, you tricked me. I still return. I don't linger so long in the sadness. I jump over to the transformation. Because for a few moments, girlfriend could have destroyed the world. And it's so impressive and awe-inspiring. And what Carrie needed in those moments where she's blood-soaked and walking up and down the town is for someone to bow down in front of her. Because that's what I would have done. If I would have seen her traipsing up and down Chamberlain, I would have just face to the floor, face to the ground in honor of the deity. Because at that point in the story, she is on another plane of existence, even though the narrative doesn't exactly highlight that. I think I've said this word 80 plus times in this episode, but guys, you know what I'm gonna say. It's all about power. This novella, for me, all this blood, it's all about power. And Carrie, though sad and tragic and victimized, she is a powerful deity for me. Yes, there is sadness, but there is also transcendence into the destroyer, into the warrior, and into someone who knows they aren't a mere mortal, a mere peasant, but something mutant and terrifying. I love it, friends. I love this story. I love its impact on pop culture. I love what it still teaches us about bullying and the consequences for one's actions. Oh, there's just so much to celebrate. And at its heart, I was asking, I'm like, why do you love it so much, Kipsy? Like, what, what is going on? There's eye for an eye balance about the whole thing. Because I feel like I want to ask the entire town as it's burning to a crisp. Um, Chamberlain, what did you think was going to happen? Truly, Chamberlain, did you not think the Pied Piper wasn't going to come and collect? The bill is due, my friends. You persecute this innocent young woman. There is going to be a price to be paid and the price will be high. <laughs> Oh my god, friends, I think Miss Carrie White is having a rather unusual effect on me and maybe we better get out of here and simmer. Okay, lovies, let's wrap this one on up and ride on out of this place. 
hopefully into the sunrise and out of Chamberlain. We gotta do it for Carrie, because I so wish Miss White would have lived to get out of that town. She and Charlie McGee could have teamed up and ruled the world. Oh man, guys, wouldn't that be the most incredible fanfiction? Let's do it, guys. We're gonna call our eight-episode miniseries CC. It'll be an acronym, and it'll stand for Charlie and Carrie, and maybe they're bank robbers of some sort. Ugh, of course it's gonna take place in the 80s because we love the 80s, and somebody get a script going. Come on, write me. Let's do this. Let's make it happen. Okay, guys, if you're still with me, bless all of you. This is going to be my last book episode of 2023. We did it, but sadly, we are out of time. We have one episode left, and that will be my favorite episode of the year, the best of underrated Stephen King 2023, where we are going to hand out some awards and rank the titles we explored this year and discuss our plans for 2024. It is going to be such a fun episode. Please don't miss it. Until that time, feel free to write into the show if you haven't yet. I know there's a lot of new folks floating around there, and I would love to hear from you and learn about what you think about these episodes and your personal history with King. So please head over to underratedsk at gmail and say hello. I have a little two-week break before my next class begins, so I am all ears. I'm going to read and rest and chat with listeners and King fans, so please make sure you say hello. Okay, my dear, sweet, beautiful friends, one more episode to go in this wild ride of 2023. I hope you all have a beautiful holiday season. Happy fifth or sixth night of Hanukkah by the time I get this episode published. Merry Christmas, Yuletide greetings as we're almost to the winter solstice. And I hope that you find a little relaxation this month. May December allow you to find some peace, indulge in some treats, make sure you get your bottle of champagne ready to celebrate with me for the best of Underrated King 2023, and at the very least, locate, wherever you can find it, some winter fire. I will see you all the week after Christmas for my last episode of this year. Much love and hugs to you all. Bye-bye.